0: very excited about being a part of this lecture series. I feel that it's so important for us today to be able to let the world know what is taking place, particularly in the area of theology, in the area of other religions, that we might be able to view the world through eyes of knowledge and and have an understanding. And I feel that today, as I'm with you, to share with you some thoughts about the topic of Islam, that it may be of a help to you to understand what is happening in the world today. First, let me uh, introduce myself. It wasn't too long ago that I was on a radio program and uh, the people were calling in, and one individual called in and said, I'm sick and tired of these people that profess to be experts on Islam and they don't know anything on Islam, and you're one of them. Well, I did want to just maybe uh, introduce myself a little bit to, to show you that there, there is a background that might make it more acceptable to you as I speak about this subject. First of all, I'm from New Mexico. I am a civil engineer of all things. I got my civil engineering degree, and after I got my civil engineering degree, I went into the ministry. And it was a very interesting thing as I went in uh, to the ministry, and when I was still at the University of New Mexico. When I was at the University of New Mexico, I um, became a Christian when I in my freshman year. And the first thing that I wanted to do at the university was to learn as much as I could about Christianity. So what I did is I looked at the uh, list of classes at the university, and I found only one class dealing with religion. And that one class dealing with religion was one speaking about world religions. And so I took it. And what I learned from this particular professor that later on I kind of surmised that he must have been pretty much of a uh, sectarianist, he said... All religions in the world are good, with one exception, that's Christianity. And he said Christianity is bad because you have to decide between Pauline Christianity and, and uh, Christocentric Christianity, and, and Christianity is bad. But all religions are good. So when I was at that point, I discovered that Islam is a good religion. And so I pretty well stayed with that, that Islam is a good religion. Well, later on, I, I became a missionary, and I went over to Europe, And uh, I worked with the Foreign Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention, over in Europe for um, a large number of years, actually 32 years. But uh, about the middle of that time, they also asked me to be the consultant for evangelism and church growth and missions for Europe and the Middle East and North Africa. So I suddenly found myself beginning to deal more and more with Muslims and with, with the Islamic faith. One of the things that they asked me to do also was to be the head of the Baptist Commission on Mission to Muslims in Europe. And so for about 18 years, I led the Baptists in trying to understand the Muslims that were living in Europe, how we could minister to them, how we could help them, how we could work with them. And so I studied an awful lot about Islam at that particular time. I must admit that in my own life, as I began to come a little bit further in my understanding of Islam, the more I begin to understand Islam, I think for the less I was impressed with it as a, as a world religion. The more I loved Jesus Christ and the deeper I came in my own faith, the more I began to realize that some of these other religions don't compare to where we were. Then they asked me to take over the, the Middle East and, the, and that part of the world. And so for about 12 years, I worked extensively in the Middle East. I was in most of the countries of the Middle East. I I was in um, many of the places such as Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Morocco and Egypt. And and I had a a large amount of contact with Muslims. Many of them became my friends. And I had talked with many Muslim leaders. And I began to know a lot about the faith. And I must admit that the more I began to know, the more I had a feeling in my heart that it was extremely necessary for us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to Muslims because I felt that they were searching and I felt that they needed to know. Well, after I finished my mission work, they asked me to come back to Golden Gate Baptist Seminary in the Bay Area in California. I went back there and I I taught for about 10 years. And while I was teaching, I decided to make a study. And I was very much concerned about why certain groups were growing around the world. So I decided to point turned to six different groups that I saw had increased. One of them was the Southern Baptists. One of them was the Assemblies of God and the Charismatic Movement. One was the Jehovah Witnesses. One was the Mormons. One was the homosexuals. And one was the Muslims. And the more I studied about the Muslims, and the more I began to realize that the Muslims have probably the most outstanding, well-thought-out, best-financed mission strategy in the world today. And so rather than to concentrate on all six of these groups, I began to concentrate primarily on Islam. And therefore, I wrote a book on it, and the book is entitled How Islam Plans to Change the World. It is simply a book that says they have a strategy in place that is second to none. And so rather than trying to condemn uh, the Muslims in this book, trying to uh, put them off the side. I wanted to show to the world what they think their strategy is, what they are doing, and what their goal is in trying to take over the world. And so that's the main reason that, that I wrote the book. Oz Guinness, a very well-known theologian, came to Marin County uh, about a year ago, and he spoke to a group of us, and he made a fascinating statement. And in his statement, he said this, He said, we in the Western world have three major issues that we have to address. The first major issue we have to address is China. What is going to become of China? Is China going to become a world power? Is China going to take over and and be the dominant force over the United States? What is going to become of China? And I believe this is a, a point that we have to look at and to think about. One of the things that thrills me so much is the tremendous growth of the Church of Jesus Christ in China. I was there just the other day, and I had the opportunity of speaking with a large number of, of Christians. And I see so many changes in China, and it seems as if more and more they're beginning to be in acceptance by the government of, of, of the church. I pray that that will take place. But what is going to happen to China? Is it going to dominate the world? Is it going to be the economic power? Is it going to be the military power? We must look at that. The second issue that he said we have to look at is what about the United States and the Western world? Are we losing our influence in the Western world? Is secularism taking over? We have to deal with secularism. We have to look at secularism because secularism is trying to become the dominant force in the thoughts and the thinkings in in the United States and Western Europe today. And so in reality, you have kind of a triangle. You You have secularism on one side, Christianity on the other, and Islam, and these three seem to be fighting for dominance in the Western world and I would say even in the whole world today. But then Oz Guinness went another step further, and he said, not only do we have to look at China, not only do we have to look at secularism, but we also have to look at Islam, and that is our topic today. And he said, there is no question about it. Islam is a growing force. Islam is a power. Islam has tremendous economic strength, and we must look at Islam and say, what is happening with Islam? What is going to happen in the future, I had an interesting experience one time. I was on an airplane, and uh, I was in uh, the country of uh, Kazakhstan, and I was going to fly from Kazakhstan up to Moscow. And if you know anything about the, the airplanes there, you know that Aeroflot is not the best and the best, uh, the safest airline in the world to go on. So I never would fly on Aeroflot. I'd rather fly on a new airline called Transaero. And the main reason I would fly on Aero was because they used Boeing uh, jets, 727 jets. And uh, though they were older ones, they had bought them from one of our companies, they were still Boeing jets. So I was at the airport in um, Amaata, and I was talking to a young man who was actually the, uh, the Newsweek uh, reporter for... Uh, for Newsweek magazine and covering all of Central Asia, a young Jewish fellow, and we had a tremendous discussion together, and we got on the plane together, and we were supposed to fly out. And I remember as we were sitting there on the plane, the plane began to take off, absolutely full. All of the, the, the uh, gang was totally filled up. Everything was, was full, and, and we started to take off. And as we got about 80% of our takeoff speed, the first thing that happened was there was an explosion right under where I was sitting, and I was sitting right over the wing. And when that explosion took place, I was scared. I think everybody else was, and the plane began to shake quite violently. Then I began to realize that we probably blew a tire, which we did. Well, I happened to know that a Boeing 727 can take off and land on just two tires, no, on one tire. There was no problem. And so the pilot knew that too, and he began to take off. And as he began to take off... The next thing we knew, that as we reached about 90% of our takeoff speed, there was another explosion on the same side, and the second tire went out. The plane began to fishtail back and forth along the runway. It began to shake violently, and as it was doing this, I remember one person yelled out, Don't panic! Don't panic! And they were kind of in a panic mood when they were shouting that. And I thought to myself, Why would they say don't panic when it needs to panic? You never hear anybody say, don't panic, in a normal situation. You don't go into a church and everything's good and somebody says, don't panic, don't panic. You only have a tendency to panic when there is a danger, when there is a reason for panicking. Well, that, that's where we are today. And I, I've heard a lot of people saying, well, here is Islam, but, but don't panic, don't panic. Why are they saying that? Because it is a very serious situation that we are faced with today. Now, I realize that, that many of you are going to know uh, much about the fundamentals of Islam. You're going to know about the, the five pillars of Islam. You're going to understand about the seven theological basis of Islam. Uh, I always have felt that uh, it's interesting to me that Islam is a growing force in the cities of the, of the world today. You know, if you study Christianity and you compare it with Islam you're going to see a very interesting thing because Christianity began in the cities of the world. It began in Rome and Ephesus and Corinth and and Jerusalem and Antioch. It grew in the cities, the major cities of the world. Whereas Islam began its uh, uh, growth in cities such as Mecca and Medina, which were really outposts in society at that time and were really quite rural type of environments. Well, if you look at the situation today, you're going to discover that that has pretty well reversed itself. Today, it appears more and more that Christianity is a rural religion and Islam is a religion that is very strong and powerful in the cities and growing in the cities, in the major cities of the world today. I've tried to analyze that to understand why that is. And I think that one of the reasons is because of the rather simplistic way that people explain both Islam, and the the, uh, teachings of Islam, and the five pillars. I went and took all of my students one time when we were in Germany, and we went out on the streets, and we went to various places out on the street, and we asked people two questions. Question number one was, what is Christianity? And when you go to a major city in the world today and ask people what Christianity is, you are going to get... variety of answers. It's like a shotgun against a wall. You're going to find anything and everything as people try to say what Christianity is. We would send our young people down into the Islamic parts of the city and we would ask people there, what is Islam? And they'd say, Islam is five uh, pillars. One, two, three, four, five. Seven beliefs. One, two, three, four, five. They knew exactly what they believed. And I believe that, uh, that one of the reasons why Islam is growing today is because that they have to a small degree simplified their belief system to the point in the place to where people who are busy who are living in the cities can grasp it, can understand it, and can know exactly what it is? Well, you might know a lot about it we 're not going to go into the foundations of islam but let, let's let 's begin with the with the very beginning of islam the in the theories of where it began. Now, you undoubtedly have already read or heard about the history of Islam and in the 7th century, how Muhammad came uh, into the picture and how he would live in um, Mecca and eventually went to Medina, etc., etc. And we're not going to go into that. But let us look at maybe two other possibilities for the beginning of Islam. One of those is that uh, in reality, uh, Islam worships the moon god. And I've been doing a lot of study in this area, trying to understand the the beginnings. And there is two volumes, excellent volumes that have been put out just recently, entitled uh, Moonology. And what it says is basically this, that in all of this area of what we would now call Iraq and Sinai and these other areas, that the dominant god that was being worshipped in this area was the moon god. He was married to the sun goddess. He had children and that the stars were were the children of the moon god and, and the uh, sun goddess. And um, many of the various studies that they made in that particular part of all of the old temples would prove that, that, that the moon god was very, very significant. They would find small statues, for instance, where they would have a crescent moon on the forehead of the statues. They found some other ones where they'd have a crescent moon on the chest of the people. And on many of the markings on their temples they had, there would be various markings dealing with the moon. Well, we all know, and even Islam teaches this, that Mecca had become a center of of, um, polytheism, and that there were a large number of various gods that were worshipped in the Kaaba in Mecca at the time that Muhammad was born, and he lived in that particular period of time. In fact, they say that there were 360 gods that were being worshipped at that time. And then they also say that the number one god, the chief god, was the god uh, Sin, Sin which was the name, basically, it came for the god, moon god. It has nothing to do with our word in English, sin today. It does have to do with the term, the Sinai Peninsula, which was the area of the god of sin. But th- this was the number one god. And many people are saying today that what happened was that when Muhammad came along, he said, now what we need to do is we need to do away with all of the gods and only have one and the God that we're going to have is going to be the God, the deity. And there's a play on words which we don't have time to go into, where it says, Ahliyach, the deity. And the Ahliyach, the deity, slowly transformed to the point where it became Allah, the one God. Even in the very beginning statements of, of Islam, where it says, Allah is the greatest, it doesn't say, Allah is great. But he is the greatest, which means that he is the greatest of all of the other gods. And so there is a very strong argument that comes along and says, in reality, the God Allah is the moon god. I have studied a lot about it. One of the things that they have, for instance, is when Ramadan starts, it always begins with the beginning of the crescent moon. Ramadan ends when the moon ceases to be seen. We also know that in every mosque and, and almost everywhere where there is a, an Islamic presence, there will be a crescent moon at the top. Not too long ago, I was in a large mosque in Germany, and, and the uh, imam was saying, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, I've got a question. What is it? Why do you have a crescent moon at the top of your mosque? His answer was very simple, well, that, that's, just a, that's just a logo, it, it's just a sign, it, it doesn't mean anything. And to this point, I have never been able to find a Muslim that's be able to tell me why they have a crescent moon. Well, to me, I think that if that is the case, if Allah is the moon god, then we have to see that there is a great divorce between Islam and Judaism and Christianity. We have another very interesting theory that has come up just recently, and that's taking place in Germany. As Muslims are growing in Germany, they have uh, tried to accommodate them as well as possible within the German society. So one of the things that they did is they said, what we need to do is we need to have professorships at some of our universities where the professorship will be teaching Islam. Because they had some of the professorships that were teaching Christianity, in some cases, missions. And so they said, we need to have some professorships where the professor will be teaching Islam. So at the University of Münster, they hired an Islamic scholar, a man who, who had German roots, but a man who was a Muslim. And they hired him and, and said, now you're going to be our new professor of Islam. Well, it wasn't too long after he had been hired that he began to write some articles and, and a small book, and in this book he said, Muhammad never existed. Muhammad was a myth. And what he had done is he had taken the same methodology that is being used by Christian theologians, and the Christian theologians are saying that we can use historical uh, and, and textual criticism, and we need to look at the Bible. And these uh, theologians in Germany many times come back to the point where they say that Christianity is myth. Uh, Boltzmann, for instance, said only 10% of the stories of Jesus were historical and acceptable, and all the rest of them were myth. Well, it was very interesting that this Islamic scholar came along and said, really, if you look at Islam, you, you, you find that there is absolutely no support for Islam and the existence of Islam outside of the Islamic sources themselves. And he said, these are not reliable. So he came along and said, really and truly, Mohammed, as an individual, as a person, never existed. Well, that, that caused a few problems in Germany, as you can imagine. And so the next thing they do, they couldn't take his professorship away from him. They, uh, they couldn't uh, uh, stop him from, from teaching, but they did stop him from teaching. They did say, now, you, you're not going to teach anymore. So they've got a man sitting over there now in a professorship in Germany that's not allowed to teach because the Muslims are so upset with him, but he keeps getting paid, and so it's a very interesting situation. Well, what, what is the beginnings of Islam? We're not entirely sure. I think that there are different theories that we have to look at. But one of the things that we're totally aware of is that Islam does exist. Well, what you need to realize then is Islam came into existence. One of the first things that they did is they began to conquer surrounding land- countries. And so there was the uh, Arabic uh, hordes that were going up to the north, and they began to conquer certain areas such as Palestine and Egypt, and begin to go over on the North Africa through the lands of the Berbers, and they began to go more and more over into, uh, towards uh, Turkey. And they were having a tremendous amount of success. The question is, what, how did they conquer people? Uh, what did they do with them after they conquered them? In most books that I have read, there, there was a lot of influence and a lot of pressure put on these conquered people to convert over to Islam. Well, they had a great amount of success, and they had began to grow. One of the teachings in the book of the Quran is this that the day is going to come when the whole world is going to become Muslim. And they believe that. They believe that before the world comes to an end, all of the people of the world will become Muslim. Well, they were working towards that end, and they were having a tremendous amount of success, from, let's say, the year about 700, all the way up until about the year, I would say, uh, about 1500. They had gone all the way across North Africa. They'd gone into Spain. They'd conquered Spain and Portugal, and they had reached into into France. When you go over to the other side, after they had conquered um, Constantinople and Istanbul, they went across and they went over into what is now Bulgaria and Romania, and they had actually surrounded the walls of Vienna and were trying to bring down Vienna. At about this time, fifteen hundred. Well, what happened then is they had a a series of of pretty devastating defeats. They lost the battle at at Tours. And at the Battle of Tours, slowly but surely, they were forced out of France, forced out of Spain, forced out of Portugal, and back down into North Africa. They lost the Battle of Vienna, and they would begin to be forced out all the way back into what is now known as, as Turkey. And so from 1500 up until probably i would say the year 1950 islam was not a growing religion they were subdued by the colonial powers many of the areas of islam egypt much of north africa much of the middle east was under the dominion of either france or england and the next thing you knew islam was not a growing church a growing denomination or a growing a religion and and this this was a problem for them because they felt like they still had this task of conquering the world. Well, what did happen then was, uh, as time went on, they, they, they came to the place and the point to where they said, we must find a way to continue what we're doing, to win the world to our particular belief. In the last 50 years, or let's say uh, last 60 years, they have begun to develop a strategy. Now, Dr. Ralph Winters comes along, and and he wrote a book, and and this book uh, was entitled "The Twenty Five Extraordinary Years." And Ralph Winters said there was a a radical change that took place in the world from nineteen forty five until nineteen fifty. Uh, excuse me, nineteen forty five to nineteen seventy. Twenty five years. He said that in 1945, of what we call the developing countries of the world, 97% of all of the people of the world were under the dominion of Western European colonial powers. That included much of China and India and all of the Middle East. They were under the authority of the colonial powers. By 1970, that had radically changed, and the next thing that you knew that we, we find a world where 98% of these same people were independent, and they had control over their own resources, over their own future, over their own political system, and the world was radically changed from 1945 to 1970. Well, that gave an open door to the Muslims, because now they begin to say, we were held down by the colonial powers, we were held down by the Christians, For about 450 years, but now we have the freedom once again to continue our search and our quest to win the whole world to Islam. And so they began to do that, and they seemed to have some success. Another interesting part that took place was back in the 1920s and the 1930s and maybe even up into the 1940s, as there were a lot of revolutions taking place, and one of the revolutions was in Germany. And in Germany, they had what they called the brown shirts. And all of these young men that were Nazis would wear brown shirts, and they they were seeking to change the government of Germany, and they were successful. They did change. Well, you go down into Italy, and in Italy, they had the black shirts. And the young men in Italy wore black shirts with a desire to change the government and to bring about a government that would be a fascist government that they could accept. Well, the same thing was taking place in the same period of time in Egypt. And they had in Egypt what they called the green shirts. And all of these young men were wearing green shirts. They'd have long beards on and they were wearing green shirts. And this was the, the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood said, we want to create a new political structure. And with this new political structure, they also wanted to further Islam and to make Islam the dominant religion of the world. Well, they had some success. The fact is, the creation of the Ba'ath Party, both in Syria and in Iraq, came from this Muslim Brotherhood movement. It, it became a more of a um, fascist movement, but to a degree they still had this theory and this idea of being able to continue the task of being able to win the world for um, for Islam. Well the next thing that we begin to see is that there was creation of different movements and different groups. And these groups then were created because of a deep theological belief that the world must become Muslim. And they continue to work under this assumption. They continue to believe that that is going to happen. Now, a lot of people say to me, but Brother Wagner, we have a lot of moderates. That's right. But the, they, they, as they read the Quran, they see that the Quran says they have to win the world. So, so whether they are moderate Muslims or whether they are radical Muslims, still this idea that the world is going to become Muslim at, towards the end of the, uh, the, the existence of this world is extremely important to them. Now, John Esposa has stated one time that, that we in the Western world have to look at three different points. One is, is there a clash of civilizations? Now, as you might might know, there was a very well-known very well author, and he wrote a book one time entitled The Clash of Civilizations. And he said that as the world has continued on from 1970, It's becoming more and more apparent that there are two of the basic seven civilizations that we have in the world today that simply are not going to be able to get along with each other. And that these two civilizations are going to have an encounter. They're going to clash. And because of the backgrounds and because of who they are, it simply cannot continue to exist in the same world at the same time. Well, is there a clash of civilizations in our world today? Two, we have to ask ourselves the question, why do they hate us so much? Why Why do the Muslims hate us? Why, why is this hate there? And then the other question that we have to ask ourselves is, is there a connection between Islam, anti-Americanism, and, let's say, anti-global terror? These are three questions that we have to deal with as we look over the, the strategy that Islam has to take over the world. And so there is a certain relationship between a hatred, not only for America, but I believe it's a hatred for the Western world that goes back even to the time of the Crusades and the, the growth of Islam today. Well, you come up in about the 1960s, 1970s, as as these people begin to have their freedom. And there was one organization that was created in 1962 And it was created in Mecca, and the title of this organization is the Muslim World League. Now, you don't know a lot about the Muslim World League. They have a a very fascinating magazine called the Muslim World League Journal, and, and you can order it from Saudi Arabia. It's, uh, it's patterned after Aramco's magazine, which was one of the top magazines in the world with its content and the beauty of its presentation. And, and that's exactly the same way that the Muslim World League Journal is. And the Muslim World League Journal has different articles dealing with the growth and the expansion of Islam and with the fact that they are saying that our task is to win the world to Islam. They were created in the year 1962, and they are the prime movers of being able to present Islam to the world. One of the areas of uh, concern for them is what they would call uh, Muslim ecumenicism. Now, we have ecumenical movements in the United States today trying to bring together the different churches, but with the Muslims, they say, we have to find some way to bring together the Shiites, the Sunnis, the Sufis, and the various other groups. And they have been somewhat successful in being able to do that with the basis of saying we must present Islam to the world as a unifying force and we must join together so that we can win the world to Islam. So the Muslim World League is not a a Sunni movement, it's not a... um, it's not a uh, Shiite movement. It's basically an Islamic movement. Another one of the actions that took place that in this uh, period of time was what we could call the revolution in Iran. The revolution in Iran. And that's when Ayatollah Khomeini came and he said that he wanted to change Iran. Well, Ayatollah Khomeini on many different occasions wrote articles. And he also wrote... Uh, 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 in, in, in a book that he had. And, and in these articles, he would say such things as this, that we have a five-step program to be able to do the thing that we have been commanded to do by the Quran, and that is to make the whole world Muslim. And the five steps that Ayatollah Khomeini spoke about was, one, that there has to first be the overthrow of the Shah and the establishment of an Islamic Republic in Iran. Well, we all know that, that he was successful in doing that. We know that, that it was the first revolution, they said, that was created primarily by the use of uh, tapes. And they would produce millions and millions of, of audio tapes in France. Take them back over there, present them to everybody, having the sermons of Ayatollah Khomeini, having sermons of, of more radical um, Shiite clerics. And, and the revolution was, was extremely successful because they were the first ones to see how audio tapes could be used for a revolution. Ayatollah Khomeini came along and said, the second step is encouraging the creation of Islamic republics in the surrounding Muslim countries, either by revolution, war, or negotiation. Well, As you look at what's happening today in Iraq, Iran, in this part of the world, of course, there's a lot of concern. The Iraq War, we hope, is kind of coming to an end, but we've had all kinds of problems and difficulties in in Iraq, Iran. Well, what what Ayatollah Khomeini was saying was, what we need to do is we need to create a, a certain form of Islam, a certain radical form of Islam, in Iran. Step number two, we have to transfer this radical form of Islam to Iraq, to uh, Syria, to Lebanon, to Palestine, to Saudi Arabia, to Yemen, and to the whole part of the Middle East. And as you can recall, there was a war going on between Iraq and Iran even before the United States got involved in this. And much of that war that was taking place had to do with this strategy that was developed by Ayatollah Khomeini. And that's one of the reasons why there's great fear today of Saudi Arabia, of Iran, because they have declared that they want to force their particular theological beliefs on all of these other countries and to make them exactly like they are. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini wrote an interesting book one time entitled Islamic Governments. And in this book on Islamic Governments, he pretty well gave his philosophy and his theory of how they were going to be successful in the Middle East. And I think that we need to to read that. You know, I remember one time that I was staying up late at night and I was watching a movie. And the movie was, was about the war in North Africa. And what they had in the war in North Africa is that they had a very well-known German general by the name of Edward Rommel. Rommel was a desert fox. He was the the best general that the Germans had. And he was fighting there in North Africa. Well, he was fighting against the British and the Americans. And uh, it just so happened that there was an American general who was not that experienced, not nearly as experienced as Rommel. Well, to make a long story short, the Americans won. They, They beat them at the very apex of the power of Rommel and the fact that Rommel was the, the best tank commander in the world and this American general beat him in tank warfare of course you all know the name of the, of the American general it was George Patton and what was interesting is they asked Patton afterwards and they said how could you beat Rommel you know you, you, you didn't have that experience Rommel had all this experience his answer was very simply Rommel wrote a book on tank warfare. I read his book. (laughs) Now, it's the same way exactly when you come down into Hitler. People said, well, how could Hitler do what he did? Hitler wrote a book entitled Mein Kampf. You ought to read the book if you want to find out what took place and how he was able to accomplish what he accomplished. Well, Ayatollah Khomeini wrote a book entitled Islamic Governments. And in that book, he said, this is what we're going to do. And I don't know why we don't read it. In fact, I tried to get some copies of it, and I had a hard time getting them. And finally, I got a couple of copies of it. But, but Islam is not perpetrating this book very much because it pretty well gives his philosophy and his ideology. Well, Ayatollah Khomeini came along, and he said, okay, number one, we have to overthrow the Shah. Number two, we have to have the creation of Islamic republics uh, in all the Muslim countries. Three, we have to defeat Israel. And he said, Israel will be driven in to the sea. And he made that as one of the strong bases of his particular belief system. I find the newspaper today very fascinating. War between the people in Gaza and and the Jewish. War between the Jews and those in Lebanon, Hezbollah. War that is taking place. And Time Magazine came out with an article the other day that said, Said, can Israel exist? And, and Time Magazine said, no, they can't exist. They will be defeated. They, they, they can't possibly stand up against the large number of Muslims that are there. Well, I think this is going to have a little bit to do with eschatology, which we're going to talk about later on. But they say there has to be the defeat of Israel. Step number six, there has to be the Islamic takeover of Europe. The Islamic takeover of Europe. We will be talking more about this, but all I can say, if you're watching me, just remember that the situation in Europe, Germany, France, England, Belgium, Norway, and to a degree Sweden and some of the Scandinavian countries, is catastrophic. The successes that they are having, the, the, the moves that they are making in this particular part of the world has even got many of the Europeans frightened as they began to say, how could this happen? How could this take place? They had the death not too long ago of the man Van Gogh, who was the uh, grandson of the great famous painter, and, and he had made a movie dealing with women in Islam, and, and so they killed him on the streets of Netherlands. And when they killed him, people began saying, well, why would they do that? We're living in this free country. And as they begin to look to see at what had been taking place and the growth that they had had, they were totally amazed and taken back by the inroads that Islam had been making in the Netherlands. And today, the Netherlands are are waking up. The fact is that uh, they have said that the first two countries of Europe that are going to become Muslim countries are Belgium and the Netherlands. And it's fascinating because Belgium has the city of Brussels... And Brussels is the, is the capital of Europe because that is where the um, uh, so-called common market or the, uh, the unified Europe has its capital at this point. Then the last one is, after Europe falls, then there will be the fall of the great Satan, the United States of America, as the last step in the creation of a worldwide Islamic uh, uh, ummah. So, is, the United, is that a possibility in the United States? Well, one of the things that Ayatollah said was this. He said, it will not be necessary for us to have a battle to win the United States. Because what is going to happen in the United States is that their moral situation is going to get so bad, it's going to decrease. It's going to get so bad that there is going to come a point in time where the American people are going to say, help us. We can't live with this moral abyss that we're living in. We need help. And there's going to be a mass movement to Islam because they will see that Islam gives them a new moral standard, new values from which they can build their lives on. So he said that that America is just going to very simply collapse. Well, another thing that that we, we have to think about is is the death of the West, is is the West basically dying? There was a fascinating book that was written one time uh, by a man named Pat Buchanan, and the name of this book is The Death of the West. He wrote this statement. He said, the West is dying. Its nations have ceased to reproduce. Their populations have stopped growing and begun to shrink. Not since the Black Death carried off a third of Europe In the 14th century, has there been a graver threat to the survival of Western civilization? Among the threats that we have today of the Western civilization are such things as secularism. I've already spoken to you that that secularism is, is winning the day in many instances and in many situations. We're also aware of the fact that immigration is growing and immigration is a very significant fact of, um, of a change of our demographies in most of the parts of the world. There is an ethnic population decline, but last but not least, Islam and the growth of Islam as a number one threat, I think, to most of the countries of the West today. Uh, when I wrote my book, I did not study a whole lot on immigration. But today, if I was going to rewrite my book, I would make Immigration is one of the important factors for the growth of Islam. They have been very successful in being able to immigrate people into the, the Western world. And as you know, there, there is a tendency from people from the South to immigrate to the North, whether that be in Africa with many, many of the Africans trying to find a way to get into Europe, and the africans include those from morocco and algeria and, and other arab countries going to the north you have the uh, immigration of those from mexico and middle america coming up to the united states there is a mass immigration from the south to the north now many people think that this is just <coughs> excuse me that this is just a um, a um, exception you know it's just just happening it's it's natural And to a degree, that's true, because the North has been economically much more successful than the South has been. But at the same time, there is within Islam very well-strategized plans to bring people into Western, European, and American cities and to change these cities. I made a study one time of, of Cologne, Germany. And if you go to Cologne, Germany today, you'd be amazed at the large number of Muslims that they have living in a particular area of Cologne. In fact, they're going to build a brand new mosque, and it's a huge mosque in Cologne, and they've had all kinds of battles and fights as to whether or not they're going to build a mosque, and that will come a little bit later as I talk about it. But, but when you come into the city of Cologne, you, you see that they, they have had a system. And as I begin to study that and to find out how they grew, you, you can find out what their system is. And again, this is not something that just takes place. It is a plan that they have. I studied in one area where they brought a family. And the family came in from, um, from one of the uh, mi- Middle East countries. They came in and they, they bought a fairly good-sized building. Where did they get the money? Well, the money came from the Muslim World League. And by the way, the Muslim World League has an enormous financial base. And they are using that money very significantly for the growth of Islam. So this, this uh, family came in. They bought a building. And when they bought the building, what they did do is they started a grocery store, a very unthreatening type of an action. They started a grocery store. They, the whole family lived in this building. Then, after a short period of time, they sought to bring some of their cousins and their relatives in And once you've got one person in, it's very easy for relatives to come in. So their relatives came in. They lived in the same building. Then they went down about a block away, and they bought another building. And then the other family went over there. They lived in that family. What they do, they started a grocery store, and they lived there in that one. Then the next thing, they went down another block, and they started another and another. And you can follow their pattern from one area of the city to the other. And as they would buy these places, and they would go, you know, a block or two blocks away, the Europeans would sell their property at a lower rate. They would be bought by people. We don't know where their funds came from, but I know that it comes from, from, from Saudi. And then they would take over that area. And the next thing you know, they have taken over a, a whole area of a city, and they have a beachhead, and uh, we will talk a little bit about that later on. I was talking to a imam one time about their, their strategy for Western Europe. And I said, you know, do you think that you're going to be successful in Western Europe? He said, well, he said, let me tell you. He said, if we are going to win the world to Islam, we must first win Western Europe to Islam. If we're going to win Western Europe to Islam, we must first win uh, uh, England to Islam. If we are to win England to Islam, we must first win London to Islam. In 1962, there was one mosque in London. Today, there are 682 mosques in London. They have been successful. They have brought this immigration. And there are whole sections of the city of London today that, that are Muslim sections. You go to the Marble Arch and you go to one quarter of the Marble Arch Uh, going up kind of to the uh, southwest. The whole area is is Islam, and you walk through that part, and you feel like you're in a city in the Middle East. There was a fascinating book that that came out not too long ago, and the title of it is Londonistan. You might want to get it and read it. Londonistan basically said this, that in 25 years, London will be a Muslim city in the heart of Western Europe. So, Uh, are they having any success? I think that they are having success. And I think that they are working very, very well at that. And what's happening is that there is this death, death of the West. And uh, you go to uh, Germany today, and one of the biggest problems that they have in Germany is the fact that the population of Germans is decreasing radically. I was talking to a man who is a member of the Lutheran World Council, and he said that their present study of the future of the Lutheran Church in Germany is about like this. He said now they have about 48 million Lutherans in Germany, and they feel that by the year 2025 that, that number is going to be down to about 24 million. That means that within the next let's say 15, 20 years, they're going to lose about one half of the number of Lutherans in Germany. And I asked him why this was, and he gave one reason. He said, because the population of Germans is decreasing so radically in Germany. They have the lowest uh, rate of reproduction that's ever been recorded in the history of the world. I believe that the the figure the last time I saw was 1.61 children for every two adult, uh, for every married couple. And it doesn't sound like very much, but it is a decrease. So what you have now is you have Islam, a very vibrant, alive, moving church saying uh, or religion saying, we're going to win the world to our faith. At the same time, you have a decadent, dying West that is struggling, trying as hard as they can to find a direction and a purpose, and they, they seem to uh, be somewhat lost. So I think that you're going to see that the clash of civilizations is going to very definitely be happening. The uh, American jihad, I think the American people begin more and more to come along and say, what, what is Islam? What is happening and when the when the nine uh, eleven took place, that was a wake-up call for Americans to say, "Islam is a reality. Islam is here. What is going to happen?" It was interesting for me to know, being in California, that when nine eleven did take place, that the ignorance to a large degree of uh, of Islam by the most of the people, most Sikhs who wear these turbans were attacked because people thought that the Sikhs were Muslims just because they wore turbans. They just didn't really know. But one of the factors that that I found fascinating was that in almost every mosque in the area of San Francisco, almost every mosque in the area of San Francisco, the day or two days after 9-11, had great big banners out, Open House, Come and Learn What Islam Really Teaches. Now I have very I have great doubts that that these mosques were aware that 9/11 was going to take place. I don't think that happened at all. But I do believe that the mosque was saying whenever the opportunity arises, whenever anything happens like this, we have to be in a position immediately to tell the Americans what it is that we believe and who we are. So I decided to go to one of these places Uh, one of these open houses, and just to pretend like I didn't know anything about Islam, and to ask. Sure enough, I went in, and and as I was there, it was fascinating to talk to them, because they would say, now, uh, Islam is a religion of peace, love, long-suffering. It's a religion where we want the whole world to just be unified and cheerful and joyful and everything. And what they were doing is they were very simply... Defining Islam using Christian terminology that I do not believe was valid. I don't believe was was acceptable. And yet they went ahead and did it. And what was happening was that many of the Americans were accepting this primarily because they knew very little more about it. And so the, the battle lines, I believe, are drawn. I believe that we're going to look into the future and we're going to see that this clash of civilizations is going to continue. And we're going to see Christianity uh, in the Western world fighting against Islam and to a degree secularism. And then in the next period of time, these are going to be very significant times. Also, I think that the, the decline of the financial power of the United States in the world today is very, very significant, and I will talk about this a little bit later on. I found it fascinating to read that when some of our banks had troubles back in October and November, and they, they looked like they, they needed to have a an infusion of money coming in. The people that gave them that infusion of money was Saudi Arabia. <laughs> they They were saving our banks for us, and I thought, isn't this a strange situation that we have today? that now economically we are in a weaker position against some of the Arab countries than it was before. Wall Street Journal came out not too long ago and they said that every week $5 billion is being invested by Saudi Arabia alone in our, in our stock market. Now $5 billion in the stock market is not a lot until you multiply that times 52, until you multiply that times about 200, then you begin to see that, that, that more and more they are taking over much of our economic strength in America today. Well, so that's our situation. That's our situation. And let me say again, don't panic. <laughs> don't be afraid. Don't be scared. But there, there is reason for us to panic. There are reasons for us to think about it. And what I'm going to be doing in the next lectures is I'm going to share with you some of the results of my study I'm going to share with you some of the results of how they view their strategy, what they are planning to do, and how successful that they have been in doing it. And then towards the end of the study we're going to evaluate it and say, where are we today? And then also we're going to say, what can we as Christians do? What can we do to stop the growth and the spread of Islam? And let me just leave you with one verse of scripture. It's one of my favorite, as I've had time to work with Muslims. And remember this the Bible says, Greater is he that is in us than is he that is in the world. We will be victors through Jesus Christ.